So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. Hear now the word of God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hopes set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, as we are gathered here in your presence, we pray, O Lord, that you would remove the distractions from our hearts and minds, that you would give us ears to listen, that you would take the seed of your word and plant it deep within our hearts and pour forth uh, the grace that comes through Christ and the Holy Spirit, so so much so that fruit would grow up, uh, that we would bring glory to your name, that you would further conform us to the image of your Son, and, O Lord, uh, that you would give unto us peace and love and joy in the midst of this sin-darkened world. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I can remember that when I was uh, just about getting ready to turn 18, this was all the way back in uh, 1988, uh, that I had the opportunity to uh, get ready to vote in my first presidential election. And uh, that was a presidential election in which uh, George H.W. Bush was running against uh, uh, Michael Dukakis. And riding on the coattails of uh, Ronald Reagan's popularity, he won in a landslide election against Mr. Dukakis. He won by a 7 million vote margin, and he carried 39 out of the 50 states. However, President Bush wouldn't repeat that same landslide victory in the 1992 presidential election. Now, there were a number of factors that contributed to his loss, but one of the key moments in the election was a key statement that President Bush made uh, that came back to haunt him. When he had accepted the presidential nomination in 1988, he told the Republican National Convention uh, this particular sentence, this one phrase to which he received thunderous applause, read my lips, no new taxes. This was perhaps the one memorable line from the entire speech, and it of course Not that there was social media back then, but the equivalent was it went viral in the news and in the press. Once he was in office, however, budgetary constraints, the national deficit, and other fiscal pressures forced Bush's hand, or at least that's the way many people have characterized it, and he raised taxes. Uh, Immediately following upon then, the, uh, the New York Times ran a headline, Read My Lips, I Lied. Well, it was a broken promise 
that contributed to his defeat, among other factors. Even though polling suggested that the American electorate favored the raising of taxes as a necessity, historians have since judged the fact that the electorate ultimately lost their confidence and trust in the president to keep his word. Now, politicians on both sides of the aisle regularly break promises, which in many respects we could say, well, that's just a mark of politics. On the other hand, we would want to say theologically, now that's a mark of what it means to be a sinful human being. We will make promises, and sadly, we break promises. And yet, what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand here in the sixth chapter is how God is utterly different from sinful human beings and that he is always faithful to his promises. He will never have that read my lips, no new taxes moment uh, in his existence. And this is especially, I think, relevant on the heels of chapter 6, verses uh, 1 and following, where the author reminded and warned uh, the uh, recipients of his letter Uh, to stay away from the temptation of drifting away, of abandoning Christ. Ultimately, what the author of Hebrews does here is he reminds them, yes, it may be a temptation, but look to the sure promises of God in Christ as the anchor for your faith. Look to the certainty of God's word. And so this is what he unpacks here in verses 13 to 20, which again stands in total contrast to human uncertainty about our own promises and our own words. And so what we want to do is we want to look first at what he has to say about God's oath, his promise. Secondly, about Abraham's patience. And then third and finally, what the author has to say about the ultimate anchor for the certainty of our salvation, which is Jesus Christ. So let's give thought first to God's oath. On the heels of the author's rebuke of his, uh, for his recipient's sloth and immaturity, he encouraged them, if you recall from last week, to work hard. He says in verse 12, Do not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who, th- who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, the author takes two key words from verse 12, and he unpacks them in the following verses, in verses 13 through 20, namely patience and promises. Patience and promises, and that he wants to turn our attention to the foundation of our salvation, which are God's promises. But then secondly, he is also exhorting his recipients to patience. So let's first look at God's promises. He goes back all the way to the promises that he made to Abraham, going all the way back to the very beginning of the scriptures in the book of Genesis. And in this particular case, Genesis chapter 17, he says here in verses 13 and 14, for when God made a promise to Abraham, Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Well, he takes us back to the events of the sacrifice of Isaac, if you remember that passage of Scripture. God commanded Abraham to take Isaac, his only son, uh, to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. 
And when Isaac, for example, asked his father, I see the wood, I see the knife, uh, where is the sacrifice? Abraham responded in faith, uh, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So here Abraham was going to the top of Mount Moriah in faith that God would provide for the sacrifice. Abraham was faithful, and at the last moment God stayed his hand, and God reassured him of his covenant promises. And this is the very uh, statement that the author uh, of the book of Hebrews says, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, what's important here is that the author says there in verses 13 and 14 that God made a promise to Abraham. And in particular, he says that he had no one greater by whom to swear, so he swore by himself. Now, why is this important? Why is he drawing attention to the fact that God swore a promise and that there was no one greater by whom he could swear? Well, he says and explains in verse 16, he says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. You know, first of all, think about the nature of an oath. Think about the nature of an oath. I can remember as a kid, you know, if I was trying to convince my brother If I was trying to convince my brother of something, maybe it was something fantastic. Maybe it was something that I heard of that was almost unbelievable. Uh, Perhaps you've said these words yourself. I swear that that's the case. It's a way of underscoring the certainty, the veracity, the truthfulness of what it is that you're saying when you say, I swear to you that it's the case. You know, especially in the face of somebody with a face of incredulity. I'm not sure I believe you. No, I swear it. I swear it's true. And so this is what he means there in verse 16 when he says, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. He says, first and foremost, God swore to Abraham. God said, I swear to you that I will bless you and I will multiply you. But now there's a second layer to what God has done here, and and the author points this out, is that typically when you swear, you typically will swear by a greater authority than yourself. You know, as kids, you know... uh, what is it that we used to say? I swear, you know, uh, swear, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye. I remember that one. That if, if, if I don't, if I'm not telling the truth, I'll stick a needle in my eye, right? That's in a sense of swearing by your own authority. I'll inflict harm upon myself if I'm not telling the truth. But how about in a court of law, at least maybe in older days, previous days, where they would say, hold out your hand and place it over the Bible that you're going to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. You're swearing by a greater authority. You're saying, not only am I swearing that this is the truth, but I will take an oath by the authority of God by placing my hand on the Bible that everything that I'm about to say is true. 
And so what the author here says is that, okay, that's fine for us as human beings to swear by a greater authority, but God has no one greater by whom he can swear. So what he does is he swears by his own authority. I invoke my own authority as the creator of heaven and earth, as the redeemer, that I swear to you, Abraham, that I will bless you and I will multiply you. Verses 17 and 18, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. I swear to you, Abraham, that I'll do this. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What he's saying here is these are the two unshakable, unmovable, indestructible things by which God does this for Abraham. First of all, he says... He swears by an oath. There is no one greater by whom God can swear. He gives him his unbreakable promise. But then second of all, the author of Hebrews says, it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. You know, how often do we find ourselves in the midst of a quandary when we're trying to discern where the truth lies in the middle of a conflict? I can tell you in my own house that we have ghosts. Ghosts. Because what happens is that somebody will take something that belongs to me. Maybe there's smaller people in the house, I will not say. And all of a sudden, something that was once in my closet ends up out in the kitchen. And I'll say, who moved... Who moved my pocket knife from my man box? Got to have a good man box. Who moved my pocket knife from my man box into the kitchen? Well, I didn't do it. Well, I didn't do it. Well, I didn't do it. Well, well, I know I didn't do it, and I know your mom didn't do it. Somebody here had to do it. We, 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 We know that when we're trying to sort out the truth that deep within the heart of every single person that we encounter, they have the capacity to, to, to lie, to deceive. And so we might not be able to take somebody at face value. Not so with God, says the author of Hebrews. It's impossible for God to lie. And if it's impossible for God to lie... And then on top of that, God swears by himself to Abraham that I will most surely bless you. He says, we know by these two unchangeable things that God's promises are certain. They're true. They're concrete. Nothing can overturn God's word. And so this is why the author of Hebrews says, don't doubt God's promises. There's nothing that will undo them. Nothing. And when you think of the the fidelity of God's word, especially in a world in which we live, one filled with broken promises and dreams, that God's faithfulness stands out. How many politicians, as we noted earlier, make and break promises regularly 
Jonathan Swift, the author of Gulliver's Travels, promises and pie crust are made to be broken. Or Niccolo Machiavelli, the promise given was a necessity of the past. The word broken is a necessity of the present. Sometimes you got to make promises in order to keep your, your power. Sometimes you got to break promises to keep your power. You just got to do what you got to do. The end justifies the means. But how about if we get a little bit closer to home? How often do parents break their promises to their children? You know, yesterday I was, uh, you know, getting ready to, to kind of turn in. And I remembered I promised my son that I would take him out and let him drive the car. He's 11. We did it in a parking lot. It was safe. There was nobody around. But I didn't feel like going out. But I told him, I, I told him that I'd do it. So I was like, all right. I told my wife, I'll be back. I got I to gotta take, take Robert out to go driving. And he was thrilled that I kept my promise. And I told him, I said, you know what? I've been putting this off for a while, but I told you on Friday, I promise you I'll take you tomorrow. And there it was, 7.30, and we headed out. Because I wanted to keep my word. There have been too many instances where I've not kept my promises to my kids. How often do spouses break promises to each other? Yet in total contrast to all of our broken promises, all of the shattered dreams, the empty words, stands the rock-solid oath and promise of God. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it, or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So in the face of the temptation to turn away, the author says, look to the promise of God, his unbreakable promise, his sworn oath. Lock on to that. But second, the author draws our attention to Abraham's patience. You know, he was well aware, I think, of the, 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 the challenges of trusting in God's promises. Yes, we have the certainty that God will fulfill his word, but sometimes waiting for God to fulfill his word has a lot of challenges. But he says this in verse 15, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, these nine words in the English translation may be few, but they convey a great deal of patience on Abraham's part. God first promised Abraham land, offspring, and blessing in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was 75 years old when he received that promise. Genesis 21, chapter 21, verse 5, tells us that Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Think about it. Abraham had to wait 25 years for God to keep his promise. Think about how many days and nights Abraham wondered when God would fulfill that word. 25 years is a long time. That's 9,125 days. That's a lot by any measure. Think of the heartache that Abraham and Sarah regularly had as they watched other couples have children. 
Think of the heartache that they brought upon themselves when they became impatient. And through Hagar, they produced Ishmael by trying to fulfill God's promises on their own. Think about Abraham and Sarah as they looked upon their ever-aging bodies. But nevertheless, both Sarah and Abraham looked upon their lives. They undoubtedly saw barrenness and even at times wondered whether or not God would fulfill his promise. But what is it that the Apostle Paul says? He says in Romans chapter 4, verse 19, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So Abraham waited patiently. And God fulfilled his word. But what the author is saying is, he's saying, yes, God's word is certain, but that our timetable as to when God or when we think God should fulfill his promise may not coincide with God's timetable. But God is never late. God is never late. And this is a theme that we find throughout the scriptures. I mean, it's, it's a very prominent theme. The psalmist, for example, in Psalm chapter 13, verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The prophet Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and will you not hear? Even the martyrs, in heaven, who are beneath the throne of God, they too cry out in Revelation chapter 6, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth? And so this is why the author of Hebrews is not in any way indifferent, nor does he have a Pollyanna view of the Christian life, but rather he recognizes, yes, God's word is certain. But God at times often calls upon us to wait with great patience. But this is where we have to recognize that God is working his perfect purposes, both in redemptive history as well in our lives. You've heard me say this on several occasions. So often we lock upon the promise and we think that all that matters is the destination or the goal. And we forget that the journey is also a part of God's process of sanctifying us and conforming us to the image of his son. The journey is just as important, if not more than the destination at times, because it's on that journey. It's in that time where the Lord is conforming us to the image of his son as we wait in patience, sometimes for long times, sometimes for years, sometimes maybe even for decades. But yet, what does Peter say? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, sometimes what we fail to see is that, oh Lord, I want this so badly, whatever it may be. I want this job. 
I want this relationship. I want uh, this school. I want the salvation of this family member. And they can all be good things. But as the Lord has us to wait, he's saying, I'm teaching you patience. I'm teaching you to have the heart of Christ. I'm conforming you to the image of my son. So that when you finally receive that for which you have longed for, waited and hoped, you will not only see my faithfulness, but you will also be ready for the very gift that I have been waiting to give to you. I haven't forgotten. I'm not being indifferent. But rather, your sanctity is more important at times than the very gift itself. You know, think of the, 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 think of the patience that has marked the people of God, you know, going all the way back that when uh, God promised to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and that the seed of the woman, the Messiah, would deliver the people of God. When Eve gave birth to Cain, the English translation is very misleading. The English translation should not say, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. With the help of the is not in there. Eve simply says in Genesis 4.1, I have gotten a man, the Lord. She thought she gave birth to the Messiah. She thought this is the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. How mistaken she was, because it was Cain. And yet, how many ages did the people of God wait for the, for the first coming of the Messiah? How long, how patient did they have to be until the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and following, but when the fullness of time had come. Another way to put that is to say that when it was absolutely ready according to God's decree, that's when Christ came. But when the fullness of time has, had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. God was not forgetting his, his promises. God had not wandered off, but rather he was waiting for the perfect moment in his plan to bring about the advent of his son. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise as some count slowness. In other words, it may feel as if God is late, but he is always right on time. And so the author says, look first to the promises of God. They are sure. Secondly, be patient. But third, he gives us the ultimate foundation and hope for certainty of God's promises. And this is why I want us to look thirdly and finally at the anchor of our salvation. Uh, In that we want to recognize that when God is producing patience in us by making us wait for his promises, he's not simply uh, giving us the context to develop patience as a virtue. My wife says this one to me from, from time to time. Patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Seldom held by women. Never found in man. And that when I'm like, I can be patient. Maybe. <laughs> I can be patient. Well, that's not what the author's saying. He says, I'm not just trying to produce patience in you. 
Natural human patience has its benefits, but this isn't where he anchors our hope. He says in verses 19 and 20, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. These two verses, 19 and 20, are like a jack-in-a-box. Uh, you crank that little handle, and when the, 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 the lid pops off, all kinds of truth springs out. All sorts of truth leap, leaps off the page when you open these two verses. And that what he says first here is that the anchor of God's promises and the anchor of our patience is Jesus Christ, the great high priest of our confession. This is why he says there in verse 19 that he is the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. Now, I want you to notice how the author says that Jesus Christ is our anchor. And then notice by, by way of, uh, uh, you know, contrast, contra, you know, contradistinction here, how the author of Hebrews compares, in a sense, the anchor for the Christian with the wicked and how Jude describes them in the book of Jude. Jude verses 12 and 13, talking about the wicked, these are hidden reefs in your love, at your love fest, feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude describes these false teachers, the wicked, as those who have no anchor. They float and wander about, restless. Restless with continual unfulfilled desire. Whereas the author of Hebrews says, no, you who trust in God's word, you who patiently wait upon him, you have an anchor that holds you fast, and it's Jesus Christ. Now, we may not be familiar with this, uh, with this type of imagery, and I had to, in all honesty, look it up, uh, because I'm a landlubber, so I don't know that much about uh, seafaring, but anchors are not only just for mooring a ship, like if you pull into port, whether it's a small sailboat or a large, you know, large vessel, of course you're going to throw your anchor down uh, when you pull into port so that the, the, the ship stays in one place. <coughs> Yet, you may not realize this, but you also use your anchor in the midst of a storm. And I looked this up, and this was this one quotation in that what this sailor was talking about is he was explaining in this article that I read about how to anchor your uh, boat or your ship in the midst of a storm. And he says, you have to throw down your anchor. You need to give yourself enough chain, what they call anchor scope, so that you have enough room, so that if you do it right, you can sleep safe and sound even in the midst of a storm, knowing that even though there are 45-mile-an-hour winds blowing, even though the waves are tossing you about, you'll be safe. But listen to how he describes this. This is not an article about Christianity. This is an article about how to anchor your boat in a storm. Nothing is worse 
than being stuck on a boat in high winds for 48 hours or 60 hours, not having anchor faith. To reduce fear and to be able to sleep at night, you want to know that you have an anchor that will keep you safe. And he was talking about this anchor faith, anchor faith. And he's talking about faith, not only in your boat's anchor, but in how well you've secured it so that you uh, can survive the storm. Well, I couldn't help but think that this is why the author has pulled upon this imagery, that we have an anchor for our soul, and it is the great high priest of our confession. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the anchor for our faith. And if we have no anchor faith in Christ, then we will be tossed about by the storms in life. Corey Ten Boom says, in order to realize the worth of the anchor, we need to feel the stress of the storm. And don't get me wrong, I'm not interested in storms. I like it when the water's nice and smooth as glass. But at the same time, we have to make sure that when those storms come, when those storms of doubt, when those storms of trial, when those storms of tribulation come, that we have an anchor faith that is secured in Jesus Christ. But notice why this is so important. He says there again in verse 19, we have a sure and steadfast anchor, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now he's talking about the architecture of the temple, and in particular, he says, behind the, te- the, the, the curtain, which means that Jesus Christ, unlike any other high priest, has gone behind the veil of the curtain that separates the outer temple from the Holy of Holies. So that when he says Jesus is our anchor and he has gone behind the veil, it means that he is in the very presence of God, And if God's promises are certain and sure, it is that nothing will break that hold that Christ has upon us and that nothing can tear us away from Jesus Christ, our sure anchor, who is behind the curtain veil interceding for us, uh, you know, on our behalf to ensure us of our salvation. So notice the overall flow of thought here is that he begins the chapter saying, if you have doubts, don't, don't, don't apostatize, don't uh, abandon the faith. Why? Because God's promises in Christ are sure and unbreakable. You may have to wait patiently, but remember, you have a sure and certain anchor that is behind the curtain, and that is Jesus Christ, the great high priest of our confession. So amidst the the shifting sands of, of human words and frailty, broken promises and shattered dreams, where will we anchor our hope? Will we look to ourselves? Will we look to the government? I sure hope not. Will we look to parents? Will we look to family? Will we look to money? Well, we look to Jesus Christ, the one in whom all of the promises of God are yes and amen. Even in the face of trials and what may seem like at times interminable waiting, 
We mustn't think that God is slow to keep his promises. Rather, he's molding, shaping, and conforming us to the image of his Son through the Spirit. And though you may look out and think that the pallor of unfaithfulness colors your life, remember that God is faithful and his silence does not mean absence. As the author later on says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for your faithfulness. Morning by morning, day by day, you continually fulfill your word to us. Help us to see the certainty of your word in Christ. That you have fulfilled your word. You continue to fulfill it and are fulfilling it yet. Oh, Father, if you call upon us to wait patiently for the fulfillment of your word, whether it be for promises small or great, we pray, O Lord, that you would grant unto us the humility and the patience to wait. Grant us your grace in Christ through the Spirit so that we would not doubt, so that we would know that you are not slow in keeping your promises as some count slowness. Father, as we wait, fill our hearts with joy. Fill our hearts with hope. Fill our hearts with a love for you, knowing that you are preparing us for the fulfillment of great promises not only in this life, but especially in the one to come. And that through all of these things, O Lord, we pray that as you make us patient, as you strengthen our faith in you, that you would bring glory to your name as the world from without will look within the church and see patience, will see joy, even in the midst of sorrow and trial, and that they will see that there is a people here, even at this church, who trusts in the sure promises of God in Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.